0: So I'd like you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. That's where I'm going to be today. And as always, there is a Bible app event for this message that you may find helpful. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, is what we're going to be discussing. So life sometimes requires that we do hard things. I've never done this myself, but I've talked with adult children who have had to take the car keys from a parent. I have told my son over my dead body, young man. (laughs) No one wants to have that done. And no one wants to do that. It is painful for the parent, it is painful for that adult child. It is a hard thing, but at times it's necessary. And at times, it's the right thing to do. Life sometimes requires that we do hard things. As a pastor, I have been in the home of someone, and it came to my attention that that person should not have guns available. And you probably remember what Charlton Heston said From my cold, dead hands, Mr. Gord. You remember that, right? And I've noticed, just as a pastor, This person should not have access to weapons right now. And after some negotiation and a little bit of persuasion and a whole bunch of prayer, I have been able to take the guns to a safe place until that person got their state of mind in a safe place. It's a painful thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. But at times, it's necessary. And it's the right thing to do. Life sometimes requires that we do hard things. As a parent, you have had to tell your children that something they genuinely wanted to do, they really wanted to do it, was something they could not do. No, you cannot go to that house. No, you cannot hang out with with those kids. No, you can't go on that trip. No, you're not going to that party. And children, they don't want to hear that. (laughs) They don't understand that. And parents don't want to do it. They're not looking for conflict. It's painful for the parent. It's a hard thing to do, but experience has shown that at times, it's necessary. It's the right thing to do. Now, these opening examples to a sermon, these opening illustrations, are kind of heavy, even kind of painful to think about, indeed. But what I want to do is, I want you to recognize that these kind of give us a perspective that we need in understanding the story of the Tower of Babel. Because I think that God was doing the hard thing. And I think it was necessary. And of course it was right. Nine verses from Genesis chapter 11, the first nine. Follow along as we read. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found the plain, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now this particular story it's kind of a story that I think is hard for today's thinker, for today's mind. It's kind of hard to grasp. It's kind of hard to believe. So I want to begin just covering some basics, or some basics rather, about different perspectives on this story. And first, I want to dispense with the liberal perspective. Dispense with. That's what I said. Now, when I say liberal, I don't mean politically liberal. I don't mean socially liberal. That's a completely different kind of liberal. I mean theologically liberal. A theological liberal would look at this story, and he would say, well, you know, this is a myth or a legend that has been concocted to explain the many languages spoken across the globe or around the globe. That's what it is. This is a myth telling us where all the languages came from. Now, Let's be honest. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? I'll be honest and tell you it has crossed my mind when I was younger. It's kind of a natural thought because many myths and legends kind of operate this way. Have you ever been to Devil's Tower in Wyoming? How many have been there? Put your hand up. Wow, not a whole lot of us. Wow, it's an amazing thing. It's a stone tower. It looks like a big tree stump. It's it's up there. It's huge, right? How did that get up there? I don't know. And there's grooves in the side of it. When you look at it, there's these, like something has gouged it and made these grooves from top to bottom. How did those grooves get there? Huh, I don't know. How'd that happen? Well, Native Americans have a rich, rich legendary history. And so one of their legends that explains at least the grooves in Devil's Tower is that a bear chased some of the braves up to the top of that tower, and its claws carved those grooves in the side of it. Human beings create myths to explain how things came to be. But if one feels a need to categorize this story as a myth designed to explain the origin of the diverse languages on earth, that person is missing the point. But let's go down this rabbit trail a little further because we almost never go down this particular rabbit trail Let's, uh, let's talk about mythologizing the Bible. There's some pretty serious problems with pointing at a story in the Bible and saying, that's a myth. That's not true. That's just a legend. That never happened. There are big problems with that. One of them is this. How do you know where to stop? I mean, if you mythologize the Tower of Babel, why not mythologize the call of Abraham? Why not go ahead and mythologize Moses. And the deliverance from Egypt. And how about the virgin birth? Come on. How about that? I don't know about that. How about the resurrection of Jesus? Come back. It sounds like a good, maybe there's a good lesson in there about not giving up. Well, when we mythologize things, if we mythologize the resurrection, uh, the Bible tells us if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. Because catch this sentence. Mythology never saved anyone. Only the real thing saves. There's other problems with mythologizing scripture. One of them is that nowhere in the Bible are we instructed that these accounts are anything less than historical. And Jesus treated them as historical. From Noah and the ark to Jonah and the great fish When Jesus talks about those, he talks about them as though they actually happened. And who am I to correct Jesus? I mean, if Jesus is good with those things being historical, I think I am too. But frankly, and I don't mean to be negative when I say this, but frankly, I reject mythologizing the Bible because it's just too easy. Mythologizing the Bible is easy and shallow. Because when you really look at the stories and really try to understand how they're laid out and what is being said there, and you understand them from the perspective of the person who wrote them and first heard them, you say, well, wow, okay, I can see that now. That makes sense now. It's not a myth. Now, if you disagree with me, I'm not going to argue about that with you. I'm just going to call you lazy. <laughs> That's All right. <laughs> More practically, I want to address what I believe are some absurd perspectives concerning the Tower of Babel. And you probably heard some of these. There are a lot of crazy ideas out there, and a lot of them have to do with Bible stories. One of them is this, that humankind was getting too close for comfort. You understand, every kid in Sunday school probably thinks this, and I think they probably think this because of the first part of verse four, where the scripture says, then they said, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Whoa, they're making a tower all the way up to where God is, and they're gonna, oh, they're gonna storm God's domain. He better stop them. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. That phrase, reaches to the heavens, this is not the only place it appears in scripture. In fact, it's pretty common in ancient literature We even have a variation of it that we use in our language quite frequently. Do you remember reading about when the nation of Israel had left Egypt and they went to the promised land? And when they got there at Kadesh Barnea and they looked into the promised land, they said, these people look like giants. We look like grasshoppers next to them. Something else they said is this. This is in Deuteronomy 128. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. And it says that again in Deuteronomy 9, uh, verse 1. The walls of Jericho are all the way up to heaven. They're all the way up to the sky. Not really. Not really. And so the Tower of Babel was not really approaching the throne of God, you understand, and he had to do something to stop that. Now, before you think how primitive they were to say this sort of thing, we do the same thing. Have you ever seen a skyscraper? No, you haven't. <laughs> what kind of primitive people are you that you think those towers in big cities like New York City actually scrape the sky? What's wrong? No, you don't think that. We just use that kind of language. And so did the writer of the story of the Tower of Babel, that those didn't approach heaven Literally. Humankind was not getting too close for God's comfort. Let me give you another absurd perspective. God doesn't want humans to live in cities. That's what it is. Now, I can hear a couple of good old Clearfield County boys saying amen and amen, right? I'm kind of with you there. I read a depressing statistic this week. In 2019, 82% of Americans lived in a city. As a country boy, my heart bleeds for them, <laughs> Right? Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? Lots of people love cities. Lots of people don't love cities. But whether you like a city or don't like a city, the idea that God doesn't like them is absurd. And I can tell you that with one verse. I could pick many verses, but let me just give you Revelation chapter 21, verse two, where it says, at the end of time, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Is Matt here, Matt McCracken? So Matt McCracken, when he was getting married, before his marriage, he said, I'm just not very emotional about this stuff. My wife is so emotional. Everyone's so emotional. I'm just, you can see Matt saying that, right? Well, he's standing up here, and she's, no, it wasn't then. I had just gone up to pray with her, and I came down to tell her, tell him, I just prayed with your wife. And he's like, ah, oh, cool. And I said, she is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And Matt cried. He blubbered a little bit. <laughs> and when God is talking about the New Jerusalem, our eternal home, he says it's a beautiful city. So it's absolutely absurd to think that God doesn't like cities. Here's a third absurd perspective. God does not like technology, and I guess people see that because of verse 3, because now they're making bricks, and they're baking them, and they've developed some mortar out of tar instead of just using stones, so God doesn't like it. That's why he dispersed them, too much technology. Wow, it's not the point at all, but people are that way a little bit. I told you before, I was the first student at Bible college to have a computer, and the administration actually had to have a meeting to discern whether I was allowed to use it to write my papers. Isn't that crazy? But it was common. It, it's still kind of common today. People talk about, well, that's just preparing the way for the Antichrist. I heard that in the dormitory about computers. When I was in the dorm, there were kids who said, I'll never have a computer because that is what the Antichrist will use for his one world economy. He'll use computers. I will never own one. I wonder where those guys are now,
1: right? That's
0: That's absurd. Let me just tell you this. The Antichrist will use a pen and paper also. Are you going to flush that? Probably not. Probably not. Just because, just because something is used for evil doesn't mean it is evil. And God isn't on a technological train here. There's technology involved in almost every aspect of our lives under the sun. We're using technology right now. I mean, you have the Bible on your phone, Those of you that are like, I don't, I have a paper Bible. I love that, you know, kind of like you're wearing like a badge. We're going to get little stickers that say, I still use a paper Bible. Give them to you for that. Yeah, you're using technology too. How do you think that ink got on the page? And how do you think these lights lit this room? We're using technology right now to stream to you. We're using technology to project my voice. God is not against technology. Those are absurd ideas. This story really, in, in my estimation, this story tells me, that God protects people from themselves. And let me say this. I think for God, sometimes it's not fun to do it. And he doesn't even want to do it. But it's necessary because it's the right thing to do. He's protecting the people of Babel from themselves. This passage shows that the people of Babel have a couple of problems that are common to man. Look at verse four again. It says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven so we may. Okay, the so that we may gives you the why. What's going on in their heart? So that we may, number one, make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, number two, we would be scattered across the face over the face of the whole earth. Why? Why are they building this tower? Why are they building this city? A big part of it is their pride that they're making a name for themselves. Now listen, I'll probably say this a couple times. You're going to have to pay attention from here on in the sermon because I'm not just going to tell you the reason for the story of Babel is it teaches us that technology is bad. That's the easy answer. The other easy answer, the Tower of Babel is just a story. It's a myth. That's an easy answer that is blatantly incorrect, just like the first one was incorrect. I'm going to help you dig down through here, but you will have to pay attention if you're going to get the point, okay? I hate it when I come to church and the pastor makes my brain work. After the flood of Noah, the Bible traces the lineage of two of those three sons that Noah has, Shem and Ham. He also had Japheth. The Bible doesn't give him a lot of ink. Shem and Ham, they get a lot of ink. You may have read in Genesis 9 that Ham's offspring was cursed because he acted shamefully. How do you undo a father's curse? How do you make a name for yourself when your father has cursed you? Your grandfather, your great great grandfather. In your family line, there's that curse. Shem doesn't have that curse. He doesn't have to make a name for himself. Well, for crying out loud, you know what the Hebrew word Shem means, right? It means name. He's already got a name for himself. Ham, he didn't get a name for himself, except shameful because he's cursed. I really don't think it's coincidental that the offspring of Ham feel this need to make a name for themselves. They want to reverse the curse. But actually, the only way to manage a curse or reverse a curse is by going to God. That's the only way. And God, our Father, can reverse any curse that any earthly father would ever want to pronounce. But in their pride, the people of Babel aren't going to God they're managing things themselves. They're making a name for themselves. We are going to be somebody. It's going to happen. Hmm. Pride. And our second problem is kind of connected with it. It's fear. Look again at verse 4. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It says at the end of verse 4. They feared being separated. They feared being divided and not, not, not being together. Who knows what is out there in the whole earth? We really need to stick together. And this flies right in the face of what God said to them right out of the ark. In one of Genesis, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. But fear kept them from doing what God had called them Has fear ever kept you from being who God has called you to be? Doing what He's called you to do? Have you ever tried to address your own problems of pride? I'm sorry, have you ever tried to address your own problems in your life in a prideful way that's kind of like, I'm gonna fix this? You're not too far from Babel. I'm not too far from Babel when I have that outlook. You know, the story really shows us how God protects us. It shows us that he has his eye on us. I mean, right in verse five, it says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. He didn't need to do that. You know, he's God. He already knows. He knows everything. But he's entering into the situation there because God concerns himself with the goings-on of humankind. Why? Why does God care what what they're doing there? Because He made us. Because He loves us. Because He wants us to overcome our problems in effective, godly ways, powerful ways, when we walk to Him and find the remedy to our problem. His eye is on us and He sees where we're headed. Listen again to verse 6. The Lord said, if, as one people speaking the same language, they begun to do this, then there's nothing they plan that will be impossible for them. Now we know this is not some kind of expression of divine fear. Oh, they might get up into my heaven. It's ridiculous. There's no such thing as divine fear. God saw that these people were on a path of unbridled destruction, and he wanted to put a bridle on it so he could rein it in. I mean, if you can drift this far from the righteousness of Noah in just these few generations, how far away are you going to get in your unbridled pursuit of evil? He sees where they're heading and he softs them. And in doing this, he ensures our redemption. He makes possible their redemption. Now, I told you earlier, you're going to have to have your thinking caps on. This is where you'll really need them, okay? Follow my thinking here. These people in Babel are the children of Ham. Their offspring become major players in the biblical narrative. The other players in the biblical narrative are the children of Ham's brother, Shem. Down the line from Shem, you will encounter, if you look on the screen, Abraham, the son of Terah, then Isaac, the son of Abraham, then Jacob, the son of Isaac, and then eventually Jesus, the son of Joseph, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior who is Christ, the Lord. He comes from the line of Shem. Do you know who the greatest enemies of the line of Shem turn out to be? The greatest enemies of God's people. I put them on a the screen for you. Here they are. They are the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, the Egyptians, the Kausalites from whom the Philistines came, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites. Do you know who they're from? Ham, the offspring of Ham. They all come from the line of Ham. They all come from the line of the people who are gathered here on the plain of Shinar at a place called Babel, building a city and building a tower. And I just have to wonder if what this story is telling us is that God is stopping them here and now so that they will be unable to, at this moment in time or a moment soon ahead, to press the messianic line into extinction because if the messianic line is ever pressed into extinction, we are damned. We have no hope. And they have no hope as well. And by the way, that line tried to do that more than once and God stopped them more than once. Do you remember how he stopped the Egyptians? With the plagues. And finally, drowning their whole army in the Red Sea. Think of the way he stopped the Philistines and others right along the way throughout the biblical narrative. God did other other things to prevent them from destroying the thing that would save them. The messianic line that culminated through Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe that's why he says, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. He's not worried that they'll reach the heavens. He's concerned that they'll extinguish their hope. And if that is the case, God is seeing to our redemption. That put a lump in my throat. He's doing the hard thing. He doesn't want to do it. But it's necessary. And he does it. The words of verse 7 come, let us go down, confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and stopped building the city. It was probably the most merciful thing he could have done. Probably the biggest act of kindness (laughs) that that group of people would ever experience. And those words help ensure that good will prevail, that Christ would bring redemption. Redemption. Communion reminds us that Christ does that very thing for us. He doesn't scramble our language. He doesn't corral us into different parts of the earth necessarily. He has given us his Holy Spirit. If you are trusting Christ as your Savior personally, then he's given you the Holy Spirit to guide you. He cares for you as he cared for the people of Babel. And Christ sees to our redemption I love the way the ESV phrases the writings of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. i read that again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, the curse that Paul is writing about there naturally is the curse of sin and the law, the curse of, of our sinfulness and how we're under God's wrath due to that. Christ broke that curse. He can break any curse, any curse. Making a name for themselves was not an effective way for the people of Babel to break the curse of him. You don't break a curse in your own strength. You break a curse by running to the one who has the power to break it. Do you ever feel cursed? I'm not talking about like there's some occultist that did, you know, I love the Twilight Zone. Not talking about that, right? I'm talking about the everyday things. Adjectives. Descriptors. They tend to feel like curses. And when an unhealthy adjective or descriptor attaches itself to you, you run the risk of owning it. And then you're cursed. Stupid, ugly, loser, wimp, addict, failure, felon, sleaze, sissy, Bully, those are adjectives. That if you allow them to define you, they will act as curses in your life. I've not told this story for a long time. Those of you that have been around a while, you can take your thinking cap off for 30 seconds. When I was a child, my mother used to make my dad give me a quarter every time he called me stupid. Stupid. I could have gone to college on that money if he'd followed through. (laughs) And so for years, I wore that. My dad was a godly man. He never meant to hurt me. My dad would have given his life not to have cursed me, so to speak, to use that analogy. He loved me deeply. But it was a careless thing, a thoughtless thing. And I owned it maybe more than another kid would have. I just owned it. And so for much of my adult life, I always felt like I was the stupid one at the table. Like I'm the dumb one. I can't do that. I would drive away from the pulpit in my car thinking that was the stupidest sermon those people ever heard. I owned the adjective. I owned the descriptor. And I tried to build a tower in a city and the way I did it is I tried to be smarter than everybody else. I mean, I know more about computers than probably oh, any of you. <laughs> okay, not you, Drew, not you, Doug. And I know more about history and I know more I'm gonna learn and I'm gonna know stuff because I'm trying to build a tower to get rid of the curse. Do you know how I got rid of the curse? I took it to my other father, my father in heaven. And is that who I am? (laughs) No, Steve, you are my beloved son. You are in Christ. You are exactly who I made you to be. And I never owned that adjective again. It happened in the parking lot of a church in Brockton, Massachusetts that I said, Father, I don't want to own this any longer. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You don't have to build a tower or a city. You can take whatever it is that you have, and you can be redeemed from that when you go to God and say, free me from this. When we come to communion, when it says a man should examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup, take that time and say, God, I need to be free of the descriptor. I'm not saying that whoever gave you that descriptor was doing a supernatural thing. I'm saying that the enemy likes to play with our brains and our way of thinking. And when we allow him to do that, sometimes in our naivete, because we're so naive, when we allow him to do that, then we own things that God never intends for us to own. When you go to communion, engage the removal of those things. Celebrate the removal of those things. He sees to your redemption and Christ sees to whatever you're struggling with today. Everyone should examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. Why? Why? So that you can be aware of the stuff that God's already aware of. Because unless you have awareness of that, you'll probably just stick with it. God is aware of the path that you're on and when you become aware that the path you on, you're on you on is not the path you should be on, then in his power you can change tracks. You can change direction. You can break free from whatever it is that holds you down when you go to God and ask him to help you with that. Just as he could see that the people in Babel were headed in a place they shouldn't be it, heading, He can see that about you. But he doesn't have to scramble your languages. He doesn't have to corral you like you were a bunch of horses and he's making sure you get over here instead of being over there. He put his Holy Spirit in you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting Christ for the salvation of your sin and you've repented from that, if you're a Christian, then his Holy Spirit lives in you. And he will speak to you. He will minister to you. He will convict you. He will comfort you. He will guide you. And he will give you victory. that's why the Bible can say without apology that no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. You can be free because Christ knows your struggle today. And he does for you in a much gentler way. (laughs) what he did for the people of Babel. He sees what's ahead of you. I would really encourage you as well, if you want to be able to follow the Spirit as he leads you on this journey of faith, to really plug into his word. There's virtually no excuse for us today not to read the Bible. Because we got it everywhere, you know? And if you say, I don't have enough time, I'll tell you what, John Piper said one time, if Facebook and other social media has given us no, no, no other gift, it has given us this gift, the gift of knowing that we got way too much time on our hands. Yeah, right? Yeah. Your word, the Bible says of God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And he will guide us because he knows what's ahead of us. He will walk with us and keep us on the right path. These Bible stories... They're not myths, they're real. They're not distant history, they're relevant. They're not somebody else's story, they're our stories. And as we come to communion today, this story reminds us that God sees us. And he sees where we're going. And he ensures our redemption, placing us on the path. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you're joining us online, I hope you have your bread and your cup ready. I didn't think to announce that early in the service, but I did mention it, and I put it on the Facebook feed there too, so I hope you're ready. The worship team's going to come, and we'll celebrate communion together. So Drew, do you want to sing a song first, or do you want to go straight to communion and then sing the song? Okay, we'll do the song after? Okay. He said, we'll do it after. I didn't know which it he meant, right? Yeah, all right. If you ever see me harassing Drew, he's got it coming. I just want you to know. Hmm. So that what you have in your hand is representative of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a moment in time, this communion event, when you take specific measures to connect with your Father in Heaven. To by the Holy Spirit listen to His loving voice. To experience the presence of Christ in an intentional and distinct way. I want to ask Laurel if she would play just briefly and uh, you take this moment To examine the path that you're on, take this moment to evaluate some descriptors that you have allowed to come into your life. Take this moment to listen to the Holy Spirit about things in your life that are just wrong. Don't consider yourself a victim like, oh yeah, I got all these things. Don't do that. You own these things. You've been around a while. What do you need to change? How do you need to reevaluate your thinking? listen to what the Holy Spirit would say to you as Laurel plays and then we'll thank God for the bread and the cup and take them together. so glad that you see us. We are so glad that you know where we're going and that through Christ Jesus you have ensured our redemption. We we are so glad that you love us. We know that we get on the wrong path. We know that we get on a path that you would be justified not just in scrambling our, our language. You'd be justified in whatever you wanted to do. But what we hold in our hand, this bread and this cup, it shows us that you care deeply for us. This bread that represents the body of Christ shows us that you are ever there for us in person. This blood that represents your, this cup that represents your blood shows us there is nothing you would not do to ensure our redemption. We are so grateful in Christ's name. I'm going to ask whoever has a microphone, that would be you, Josh, and then you can give it to whoever you think should have it next, okay? But would you pray a prayer of thanks for the bread, and then you can pass that mic to whoever you feel is appropriate. Let's bow our heart as Josh prays.
1: Lord God, my heart is in agreement with what Steve just said, the prayer that he just said. We are so incredibly grateful that you fight for us, that you provided a way for us. It is finished. That we can let go of control, thinking that we have the solutions and we can rest, rest in you, Jesus. We thank you that you paid for it all. In your name I pray. Amen.
0: The body of Christ. Scripture tells us that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And afterward, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Bo if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ. Bo?
1: God, it's hard sometimes. We, When we look inward. We see our faults, and we see the things that, um, all the ways we fall short, and then we we never see it from your perspective. You see so much more. You see things that, that we don't even realize um, how deserving we are, or undeserving, I'm sorry, undeserving. And, and we just uh, are are so fortunate to have a God that loved us so much that He sent His Son to pay for those sins that we see and we don't see, loves us enough to bless us and also withhold things that uh, help us to see our need for you. And we just thank you for the gift of your son and the blood that he shed that pays for our sins, both seen and unseen. In Jesus' name, amen. The
0: blood of Christ.